It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today is my friend, my colleague, my co-worker, my enemy, my neighbor, Mr. Mark Daly And that can mean only one thing, that this is a continuation of our interview series. So thank you for joining me. Today's very special guest is named Lily K. Herman. I'm sure many of you at home either know her because of the Engine Failure newsletter or because you're familiar with some of the work that she's done outside of the realm of Formula One. Lily is a writer, an editor, a podcaster, and a digital strategist. Her work has been published in Teen Vogue, Allure, Glamour, Refinery29, Time, Mashable, Business Insider, Cosmopolitan L, and many, many more. In recent years, Lily has become infatuated with Formula One, and today we sit down to talk a little bit about how Formula One came to intersect with her life. We talk a little bit about the Engine Failure newsletter, her finest, finest work if you are to ask me, and of course, her most recent revelation, which is that she is going to be hosting or co-hosting Sports Illustrated's official Formula One podcast that gets started in late June of 2020. 22. With all of that said, we're going to jump to a quick break, but before we do, I'll take just a moment to ask everybody listening at home, if you love our show, if you tune in regularly, if you can do one big favor for us, one big solid, if you use Spotify, if you can give us a rating, it means the world to us, and if you use Apple Podcasts, if you can take a minute to give us a review and give us a rating, again, it means the world to both of us. So with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to be joined by Lily Herman. See you on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and as we've been teasing for months, for weeks, for days, we've been teasing it on this podcast, we've been teasing it in our Twitter feed. Joining us is the one, the only, the myth, the legend, Lily Herman. Lily, thank you so much for joining us. We couldn't be more ecstatic about having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, technical difficulties and all. <laughs> so, I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. You know, I think the good news is that 10, 15 years ago, what we're doing would not even be possible, right? Like we would probably be doing some conversation over the phone with some grainy recording. Like this is pretty cool. Like despite the fact that we've got some internet connectivity issues, this is still pretty cool. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm super, super stoked to be here. Thank you for dealing with all of the scheduling and rescheduling. And I swear I'm not that busy or prima donna of a person it's just been a a wacky 2022 yeah and we'll get into just why your your year's been so busy and so packed but i think for our listeners a lot of them probably know you through engine failure and obviously your work your the the writing that you've done and the media commitments that you've accomplished over the course of the last five ten years are pretty widespread but again we usually speak to a, a formula one community and we've done We've done as much as we could to promote a product that you've been distributing now for some time called Engine Failure, which is this phenomenal F1 culture and community newsletter that you deliver almost every single Monday. And I think from our perspective, Daily worked in publishing, I worked in publishing, we know how much work it is to bring something like that together. But maybe for the audience that doesn't know you and hasn't had the opportunity to subscribe to the Engine Failure newsletter, maybe introduce yourself to the audience and let them know how they could follow you and talk about some of the things that you've done in the last five to 10 years. Yep. So, uh, so my name is Lily Herman. I am, I'm American. I'm based in the States. I'm based in New York city. And I have generally called myself a writer, editor, and digital strategist. Of course, now I have to say podcaster. So I get to be one of those people now. Uh, but yeah, I, I've been a career freelancer. So I like to work for myself. I like to do my own thing. I like to have my time be my own. And so I'm always kind of working on any number of different gigs. But my career, generally writing-wise, has been focused on a lot of politics writing, a lot of culture writing, a lot of intersections between pop culture, feminism, yeah, what's going on in the po- you know political conversation domestically, the list goes on and on. I've also worked on a bunch of other social media things and whatnot. But I'd say generally, I'm someone who can who can get very deep into things, regardless of what that is, Formula One or otherwise. Uh, but I will say, for instance, I spent five or six years being a political opinion writer here in the States uh, during a very interesting time in our nation's history. So I started in 2016 during the 2016 election and uh, kind of did that through the 2020 election through last year. I've also written a lot about yeah books, TV, movies. So pretty much uh, I've written about pretty much everything at this point. I used to joke that I had done everything except fashion, but now I write about fashion. So <laughs> that too is I on the it. list of, uh, of things. But yeah, I guess present day and how it how it affects this particular listenership. I do write a usually weekly, but it's been a little bit erratic for reasons we'll explain in a second, a Formula One newsletter called Engine Failure, which is sort of my version of what I like to follow within F1. There is a little bit of technical and engineering commentary, but mostly it's a mix of what is the culture surrounding the sport, the drivers, the team principles, all of that. That includes the fashion, that includes keeping track of Carlos Sainz's uh, 
you know, his pants, which we can also get into, I guess, and all my superstitions <laughs> and theories with that, which have not been proven incorrect to date. Uh, and everything kind of in between. I see it as a, a sort of different way to cover the sport than what's traditionally done. But I will say that that it also builds on a lot of fandoms and communities that have already kind of existed within F1. I don't want to pretend I'm the first person to ever talk about fashion. That's ridiculous. You know, there are blogs going back over a decade that have talked about paddock fashion. So, uh, but I think I just kind of take a very a very American approach to uh, to looking at the culture of the sport with a tiny bit of humor and and some criticism and uh, and just kind of yeah doing my own thing over here I don't think we need to relitigate why Formula 1 has seen this surge of either renewed interest or or new interest in the last couple of years but one of the things that I've discovered that I find really compelling and and really curious is that a lot of the people that have migrated over to Formula One fandom aren't people that I would necessarily put in that box as a sports fan. That when I look at these people and I ask them questions like, well, do you follow team sports today? And the answer is like, no. And like, do you follow college sports? And they're like, no. And like, it's really interesting that you found a passion with Formula One. So I think my question to you, especially given the fact that the, the topics and the subject matter that you've covered and written about and provided analysis about, it's much more dense and, and much more real in the sense that it affects society in much grander, broader ways. So the question for you is that how did Formula One intersect with your own life and what drew you into the sport? And finally, did you follow any other sports prior to this or is this kind of the entry point or the entry to sports fandom for you? Yeah, so I, I think it might be easiest to start with that last question because it kind of contextualizes everything. So I, <laughs> as I said, I'm American. I actually grew up in the American South. And uh, for those who do not are not from the U.S. or don't really know regional culture in the U.S., which I do not blame anyone, it's very confusing. We have like 18 countries in one country, which is part of the problem. Um, but, you know, the American South is very much a sports dominated place. And the U.S. is very much into the big four sports, that being American football, baseball, basketball, and hockey, but even hockey kind of depends a little bit where you are in the country. Uh, but but uh, the American South, very big football place. You know, there is some baseball and basketball and whatnot as well, or not some, a lot. And I, I also went to a humongous sports high school in the South. So I was surrounded by kind of traditional American sports, did not follow any of them. However, I did follow the Olympics very closely. I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. I also follow a wacky array of other sports. So figure skating, swimming, I come from a, a family of swimmers. And and I also followed the CrossFit games for a bit. So I can talk to you a little bit about that fandom, which is fascinating. <laughs> uh, but I yeah, so I, I do have a history of following sports, just not the ones that that most Americans follow, you know, call me a, a contrarian over here. And, I, you know, so I, I have I have the ability to get into sports, I understand how sports work, you know, I, I kind of understand how to get into any sort of sports fandom if I want to. But yeah, I, I, like many people found in the US found Formula One through Drive to Survive a while ago. And to be completely frank, I know our, our mutual friend Bird Pinkerton very famously said that Formula One is like real housewives, but going 300 kilometers an hour. I always just joke that Formula One is pure camp. Like, like in, in like, it, it's, it is it is pageantry. It is hysterical to me. I do love that, and this is why a lot of my friends like it, it's very easy to follow. Whereas American football teams, you're dealing with dozens and dozens of people per team and per right. position. And right. that doesn't even include the coaching staff and the support staff and the this and the that. F1 is like, there are 10 teams, there are 20 drivers. 
There is no, you know, we're, we're recording this right after the NBA draft. There is no draft. It is all politicking and Richie Riches whining at each other and, you know, bitching about stuff. And I love that. <laughs> like, like <laughs> F1, F1 barely pretends it is a meritocracy sometimes and then just kind of shrugs it off. It is not a meritocracy. We aren't even pretending. And that, that holds a lot of appeal to me personally. So I, yeah, I just, I love that aspect of the sport. I like that it is kind of, and I mean this in the most loving way, it is unnecessary. We don't need to have people doing all of this and doing the uttermost all the time. And yet we do. And it's great. And I absolutely love it. So I think that that's, I, I would say, sort of my entry, um, it, it, my my background with sports and, and sporting things. But uh, I'm trying to remember what the first question was, because I got so, so caught up in the rest. But well, I think I think you nailed it, which okay, was perfect. like so many of our our listeners. This and we call it Generation DTS. Generation DTS was your entry point into the sport because it presents itself as this. I don't want to say reality show because I think sometimes that does a disservice to the audience that consumes that type of product. But I think in a lot of ways. Uh, Drive to Survive made the product and the individuals accessible and compelling in a way that they weren't otherwise. Because prior to Drive to Survive, unless you were a Formula One fan and you watched every race and you read the interviews, um, you probably didn't know a lot about the individuals and therefore it wasn't really compelling to follow the sport because you weren't emotionally invested in those people, right? And I will say something that's come up a lot, I think, especially from European fans, is the frustration about how you know there, there are very valid criticisms of Drive to Survive. I've I've made quite a few of them in various newsletters. I will say that Drive to Survive is produced and edited the way so much of American reality TV is. And so I'm not surprised that a lot of Americans, even if they are not a really big reality TV people here, they understand the format. You know, they they've they've perused yeah. an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. They watched The Bachelor. They watched Survivor 20 years ago when it premiered. So they understand the cadence and what that what is supposed to happen. And I think that that's also really appealing is that it's a familiar format familiar stakes, you know, the way that Drive to Survive, for instance, lays out the quote unquote characters, right, of of the paddock, be it a Daniel Ricardo, who I say is the right. driver protagonist of Drive to Survive. You know, we lay out the, te- the team protagonist to me is Haas, right? We always will get a Haas episode because we have suffered with Haas for every single season of this show. Uh, but, you know, the fact that Christian Horner was kind of this early quote unquote character of that show, that I think right. is, there's a lot of appeal to Americans even if you don't watch anything else reality TV wise, you understand just from living in this nation and and being around other people in our culture here, that all just makes sense to me. I don't know. I, I remember seeing it and being like, this is the most American like sports <laughs> show. And it's just so, yeah, it just all made sense. But I, I, I think that they're, again, valid criticisms of the show. I understand frustrations with fans who come in through something that is a highly edited product. And at the same time, Drive to Survive has done more for this sport than I think almost any other single marketing initiative at any point in F1, other than maybe when they, you know, our old pal Bernie decided to start airing these races on TV. But like ever since then, you know, you think of things that have really moved the needle with an American audience. Yeah, like we like drama, we like pageantry, people want to claim otherwise. But even I mean, our major event in this country is the Super Bowl, which is all pageantry. We have people who watch it for the commercials and the halftime show, right? Like, I think, and I and I don't think that has to be said in a bad right. way. It's just a particular cultural preference. Like I, I know that Europeans, like they understand it, because I mean they have the World Cup, they have a lot of soccer events, whatever. But like, yeah, like Americans, I think just prefer certain things. And Drive to Survive kind of hit that 
sweet spot for a lot of people. And a lot of people who aren't, yeah, aren't traditional sports fans here or, or, or don't consume sports culture here the way other people do. If that Definitely. Makes sense. No, and I love the fact that you speak to the differences between Formula One and conventional American team sports. And you're right. If you're an NFL fan, the commitment is for three months, you have a game every single week. You need to know a roster of 50 people. You've got a carousel of coaching, and then you have all the drama that surrounds that, combines and drafts. And Formula One, it's it's pretty low impact. Like you said, 10 teams. Okay, it's pretty easy to remember the names of the 10 teams, and you have just 20 drivers, and that's it. And then the commitment throughout the season is even if we get to a calendar with 24 or 25 races, and that's a whole different conversation, we're really talking about one two-hour race every two weeks. And I think what we've discovered with a lot of our fans is they don't necessarily even watch the race. They consume F1 through TikTok and social media and memes and driver interviews and podcasts. So I find that super, super, super fascinating. Now, I, I want to get into that a little bit more because we've got a couple of listener questions that lean into specifically that frame of thought. But I did have a couple of questions for you that are more coming from a personal place just because I'm really fascinated about this. And the fact that you have written, you have covered U.S. politics, which is probably one of the densest, most layered topics globally that any writer can be involved with. But you kind of shifting over to the world of Formula One. As somebody that has extensive writing and reporting experience, what is your perception of the way that Formula One is covered by traditionally independent media? And and I often refer to Sky as semi-independent, right? Like they are an independent news outlet, but they're also bound to Formula One because they broadcast the races. As, as an outsider stepping in, how do you perceive the coverage of F1? Well, first of all, the thing I find funniest, and this has come up amongst other... American journalists who follow even F1 recreationally, they're not covering it professionally, is we cannot believe a lot of us just the amount of like, just just like, I wouldn't even say non-ethical because I have issues with like American journalism ethics to begin with, but a lot of the overlap where like you can have an F1 journalist own a company with an F1 driver and an F1 to, you know, and everyone's just like, that's normal. That's chill. There's so much <laughs> overlap and, and kind of weird relational right. stuff that I find very funky, but again, also hilarious. Like I'm, I wouldn't say I'm unbothered by it, but I just, I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. Like this is truly hysterical to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that's great. I think what I love about the F1 apparatus is that there are so many different ways to consume it, be it more traditional media online, whether, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Magnus's, uh, we were talking Magnus before we started recording, uh, with Race Weekend, you know, you get a, a physical print product, you can go on TikTok, on Instagram, Twitter, there's entirely, you know, Discord, I'm on 8 million different Discords lurking, talking about F1. There's there's a million and one ways to uh, consume F1 content. And I do think it has some of the most robust, yeah, independent journalists, writers, content creators, et cetera, which I think is is excellent and really, really fascinating. Um, but I, I am very, yeah, I continue to be very interested in, in sort of, yeah, the relationship between more traditional, okay, I would say more traditional media, so mainstream media, and then traditional F1 media, and then independent creators. So for instance, I've been fascinated, and I've covered this in Engine Failure, the proliferation of F1 in mainstream media 
American media. So it's I, I've joked quite a bit, as you know, about how how every American publication seems to always have a a story that goes along the lines of like Drive to Survive has made all of these American F one fans. Like this is a story that yep, the yep. Wall Street Journal. New York Times, Washington Post, CNBC, like you can go through the list. Every single one of them has created something like that. Um, I also think that there's an interesting story to be told about American sports media trying to figure out how to cover F1. That's been interesting. And I do know some people who work in sports media. And it's kind of this weird thing in that a lot of these outlets don't necessarily have the resources to create an entire F1 or racing or motorsports team. So it's kind of this weird like, who here has watched Drive to Survive? Who knows what's going on and can cover F1 in addition to covering like basketball? You know, like it's it's this really funny, right, right. wacky thing. So I, it's it's been really fun to watch and to talk to with people. I think it's rare that, you know, there's, yeah, there's sort of a niche in especially American media that still needs to kind of be carved. But um, I'm, I'm ranting here or I would say rambling about F1 in America. But I, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, the relationship between media and the FIA and, and just F1 is kind of a jumbled mess. And in many ways, it's produced great results. And at other times, I am just like, I don't understand how this is kosher. But I love I love that it makes no sense. <laughs> yes, like, yes. Uh, bizarre, just truly bizarre. But I, I'm, I'm truly loving it. <laughs> you know, as somebody who admittedly is a big fan of, of North American sports, so the NBA in particular, you know, Obviously, ESPN and ABC and these other networks broadcast the the product, so they're obviously partners with the NBA. But at the same time, you look at ESPN, there's few networks that have been more critical of the sport and have done more investigative work into the underbelly of that sport. And what makes Formula One unique sometimes is there are some really significant scandals that nobody touches. And back in 2019, at the very, very onset of the Drive to Survive generation, Ferrari was caught by the FIA, by the sport, Let, let's call a duck a duck here, they were caught cheating with their engine. And nobody, nobody in the credentialed media would touch that story. And I was just thinking, like, if that was NASCAR, Indy, the NBA, you would have had 10 writers chomping at the bit because that could be a career-defining story. But in Formula One, credentials are so valuable and so sacred. And if you live within that credentialed bubble, you do not want to do anything to compromise that access. So my question to you is, and maybe this has already happened. If it hasn't, it probably will soon. But if the FIA was going to call you tomorrow and say, hey, here's your credentials. You're good to go for the next year. What are the type of stories, both serious and maybe less serious, that you would be eager to dig into with that newfound access? So- I'm going to answer your question with an answer to a different question. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But (laughs) here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. I I have had people say, like, will you ever go after FAA credentials? And I think generally my ethos is I kind of, I think a reason why engine failure has succeeded is the fact that I'm an outsider, both in terms of I'm an American covering a sport that is largely European. I have this newsletter that's independent and currently free in every way, shape or form. So I don't I'm not beholden to anyone except myself and my schedule and my motivation. Um, So I I don't know if I'd ever want to be credentialed. I'll be honest and say, too, that I don't know if paddock access, it's all it's cracked up to be, especially when I see how tight-lipped F1 people are. I'd say they're even more tight-lipped than pretty yeah. much every other sport I have kind of followed in in my career, again, both personally and professionally. So I, I'm fascinated by if that would even be worth it to begin with. But yeah, I think right. if I were to, 
get that access. I think there's a lot of questions surrounding if it would even be worth it, because a lot of people just won't talk, is what I've also learned from other journalists who've tried to poke around various interesting stories within within F1. And some of them actually will, I, I have talked to and we'll get into why in a little bit. But I don't know. I think on top of that, too, I kind of like being able to like criticize and poke fun at various characters or people or ask those questions without F1 or the FIA being able to do anything about it. Like, I'm not saying any anything that's like legally sketchy. It's just like, you know, a lot of times just pointing things out. Um, but I yeah, it's a, it's a I don't know if there's a specific story, though, I'd want to go after. Um, I, I always like to tend to want to laugh and joke and uh, kind of go after the wacky stuff. <laughs> uh, but I do think I do think that someone needs to write the definitive what the fuck is going on with Jamie Chadwick's career piece. And it can't just be. And also, I was surprised when she signed with uh, Caitlyn Jenner, how pretty much no, almost no media, with exception, I will say there were some people this particularly independent journalists, but how a lot of places did not even go into Jenner racing, who Caitlyn Jenner is. And I think the context is lost if you're not an American and if you don't you know, if you're not in a culture that is so ingrained in the Kardashian-Jenner family. So I, I things like that where I, I was just surprised there wasn't as much. Um, but that's the story where I'm like, everyone's been kind of in, like circling it, but no one quite wants to call a spade a spade when it comes to why Jamie Chadwick's career is not where it probably should be, or at least the opportunity has not presented itself to allow her to showcase if she could really make it to f1 um that's that's i think what immediately comes to mind is is i'm I'm awaiting that kind of like expose you know what do you think and and obviously we know liberty's changed the sport in a lot of ways and it's made the drivers and the product more accessible both in the both in the sense that they've served up the personalities through a product like Drive to Survive, and they've also unleashed social media, which is something that Bernie was fiercely adamant to to lock down and keep out of the sport. Because for him, if you want access, you have to pay for it. And he was all about monetizing every angle of the sport. Do you think the the media has adapted to the new landscape effectively? You know, prior to 2017, the media was very, very much in keeping with the Bernie marching orders, but they also didn't veer into the lighter side of the sport. And I think something like engine failure is really great because you're covering and discussing different angles of the sport and different dimensions that maybe traditionally haven't been covered. Are you starting to see F1 media adapt both to the current state of the global I don't know, society in 2022, but are they also adapting fast enough to the new demographics that are consuming the product? A good question. So I definitely think that there have been excellent journalists in F1 long before Liberty Media. As I've said, there were fashion blogs going back well over a decade, for instance, also like working to talk about the paddock. Like there's, a, I'm trying to, oh, what is it called? Pit walk, pit lane walk. There was a blog that's now defunct that like, for instance, one of the, one of the few photos we have of Sebastian Vettel's wife, that's like a very famous photo. He's wearing this ridiculous scarf and the person tracked down the brand of that scarf. I'm like, that is the most genius journalism I have ever seen. Like A plus, I don't want to know what went into that story. Uh, but that was from like, you know, 2010 kind of thing. Uh, but I think there's been a lot that's been great to begin with. I will say, yeah, it's been interesting to watch, um, I think F1 media deal with, and social media too, kind of deal with, yeah, not just a massive quantity of fans, but 
fans coming from maybe different places than traditionally were seen. And then on top of that, demographically fans that don't look the way that I think when we think of who's like a, a racing car fan, you know, these myself included, uh, we don't look like the people who we're traditionally told should be into that sort of thing, quote unquote, right? Uh, but I will say that I think some F1 media outlets uh, are not used to being criticized. And some of them, it's very much rightfully so they should be criticized. And so I think they get a little bit in a tizzy about that because uh, people are, there are more eyeballs, there are more people from different perspectives and backgrounds kind of paying attention. So that's been sort of interesting to watch. Um, and I think too, yeah, I think there's been a lot more attention on also who, yeah, who gets access and not just F1 media outlets, but also independent creators, right? Content creators on Instagram and TikTok and, and Twitter and whatnot. So yeah, it's it, like, as I said before, it's kind of a jumbled mess, but that also I think makes it fun. And that also means there's a lot of opportunity there. And I definitely am a believer in that we don't, you know, especially, let me rephrase this. I think there's room for everybody. So we don't have to compete or, or say like, we can only have X number of ways to cover F1. I'm like, you know, I, people will gravitate towards what they're going to gravitate towards, but I don't think there has to be a limit on it. And I, I'm also perfectly fine for obvious reasons with like newer stuff popping up. Also, if it's newer and better, maybe that'll also motivate other things to adapt or pivot or do what they need to do. And hey, a lot of stuff has an audience where, you know, they're not, that outlet is not problematic or bad. It's just not someone's cup of tea, right? Like that also exists a lot in the sport where I'm like, there are certain podcasts where I'm like, they sound great. They are not something I'm going to spend two <laughs> hours a week listening to, but like I, they're doing nothing wrong. <laughs> so, so I, I, yeah, I think there's definitely... I don't know. Yeah, I think, but I think that there's definitely an awareness right now that that F1 is much bigger than it was five years ago. You know, and I and I feel for people who have followed the sport for you know five, ten, fifteen, twenty plus years and are maybe a little weary of like all of the newness and the change and the this and the that's because I get that that can be very jarring. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I think also like especially in America, the club of people who have watched F1 prior to maybe 2017, they are like a. <laughs> There are some stalwarts in there, you know, like especially to be an American F1 fan, you have to be hardcore. You're waking up, depending on your time zone, anywhere from 4 to 7 a.m. to watch these races, you know, like or I would say even American, like North American fan. Like you have to be, as you know, like in it to win it right. to be into F1. So I think that that also, you know, that's a pretty a pretty uh, hardcore group over here. Uh, and that kind of bleeds into to also like F1 media and what they want to consume and, and all of that. I was DMing with a listener earlier today, and this individual was uh, giving us credit for, you know, you guys go so far out of your way to interact with the community and you do these spaces, chats, and blah, 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 blah. And super nice sentiment. But the reality is, and I'll be totally honest, if we were still doing with the podcast today what we were doing two years ago, our audience would be the exact same 1,700 people that downloaded the episode every single week two years ago. And I think what we've tried to do is try to understand the audience and, and what they're looking for and let that inform the way that we present the program and the topics that we cover. And I'll be totally honest, one of the things that excites us most is our audience is exceptionally more diverse than I would have guessed two years ago. Obviously, 
Drive to Survive has drawn in new fans, but they've drawn in entirely new demographics. And while we've done some light surveying and it's something we don't want to be too intrusive with our audience, you know, we know that about 50% of our downloads are women. And that is fantastic. And that's something that's super exciting, but it's also fundamentally different than it was two or three years ago when, you know, our audience was probably 80% male. And the other thing that we've discovered as well, because obviously when you're hosting a podcast is you get some pretty good insights into where the those downloads are coming from. And we know that about half of our downloads are coming from the US. And within the US, there's some pretty surprising places. But we also have a huge contingent of listeners in the Middle East, in the Arabian Gulf. And I think sometimes Formula One's criticized that, hey, you're putting races there and it's just a vanity project for those governments and a marketing exercise. But the number of fans in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Oman that listen to the show and reach out in our gauge surprise us. And this is something that's really, really cool. So we have allowed our audience to inform the way that we present our show. And for us, that's been helpful, but I think that's not always going to be effective for everyone else. So one question before we take our first break, and I kind of want to kind of, this will be kind of the last media related question based on your expertise in that space. You know, Formula One has, and this is one of the things that actually makes makes Formula One unique and maybe even special, but it has a pretty dark underbelly in terms of uh, scandals. Obviously, we can talk about Spygate and Crashgate, their close affiliation with tobacco companies and the fact that they bankrolled the sport for three or four decades. And even recently, questionable sponsors like the one that Haas was, well, the last two that Haas was partnered with. From your perspective, do you think some of these scandals, at least the more recent ones, particularly with Haas, um, are they self-inflicted? And has the media done a good enough job of holding the sport accountable? And furthermore, is it the media's job to hold the sport accountable when they link up with sometimes nefarious sponsors and partners? Yeah, I definitely think um, F1 has a tendency to look the other way when convenient. And F1, I mean, not just the organization and the FIA and all of that, but just in general as a community, a lot of that can happen. Uh, which is also, again, why I find this sport to be so kind of hilarious, but also really, <laughs> I wouldn't say terrible, but but really just like, you're like, oh, God, like, yeah, like, you're like, Haas, what are we doing here with like yep. a Russian oligarchs fertilizer company? Like, oh, God, guys, really? So I think that that's always, you know, a bummer Then at the same time, you're not surprised. And I will say what's kind of difficult is, yeah, there can be a lot of great fans who pay a lot of attention and, and really bring up things that that anger them about um, the the sports, yeah, um, more nefarious or, or less positive aspects. I will say, yeah, some F1 media does a good job. I think the problem that which comes up with every sport and whatnot is there can be a lot of just like parroting of things other people have said without any real substance or... Right forward motion you know and it's not that media has to be the only people holding feet to the fire but i think because of all of the weird ethical murkiness you know maybe some people don't investigate as closely or look as closely or point out the obvious thing i mean even you know we're talking right after yuri vips was uh unceremoniously dumped at least temporarily by red bull um a lot of outlets sort of really kind of skirted around a lot of the main issues there and just kind of either right. reported the straight facts or really just kind of said he was let go. So I think that that that's sort of an interesting problem that continues to exist in the sport is is not quite wanting to take anything head on or not knowing how to or 
or just yeah like I, yeah it really depends also on on what the quote-unquote scandal is like i think there's a big difference even between haas's two recent sponsorship scandals there was sort of a a weird funky hilarity to the whole rich energy thing like there are so many layers to that that are so ridiculous but in kind of a a cheeky way or you're just like what the hell happened there whereas your Kali seems a lot more nefarious and really especially given the current events and the current situation of the last couple months is just a lot darker uh and a lot just a, a lot more there in terms of you just being like oh God, you know like this is just bad so um yeah i think there are definitely degrees and levels and nuances to all of it but i think that there have been plenty of times where even when doing my own research i was surprised at lack of media and this is when you know the internet was definitely around we're not talking about like i'm looking up stuff from the 1980s and didn't fight it's like no i'm talking about like <laughs> 2016 kind of stuff or even 2018 2019 right. you're surprised that maybe there's only one article on xyz thing uh so that that's i think been an interesting issue i've discovered just accidentally yeah trying to to do my own research and, and kind of have my own sourcing and, and evidence and whatnot we discussed yuri vips on the podcast last night so that would be the friday june 24th show for anyone that's listening to this the following week uh, and you know i actually agree well very much agree with that point about media outlets either discussing the facts or categorizing the facts surrounding the outcome um or just very, very lightly addressing the issue. And we actually read out because you had dropped your emergency engine failure newsletter specifically to address this. And we actually read it verbatim because it was the best, I think it was the best statement of facts and associated opinion that we found anywhere. So we actually read that. The other thing we did yesterday as well, and just kind of speaking to the nefariousness of your colleague and Haas, we jokingly had a little bit of fun on the podcast last night and we kind of captured some of the biggest, most sinister companies from uh, science fiction. And we did a draft and we assigned them to teams based on their association. So for instance, last night we had Cyberdyne Systems, of course, from Terminator, the company responsible for Skynet. We associated that with Red Bull. So they're a new Red Bull sponsor. And we went down the list with InGen and Huli and Evil Corp and Umbrella Corp and had a little bit of fun. But on that note, we do need to take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills. When we get back, Lily, I am dying to hear all about engine failure, where it came from, what your initial objectives were with it, whether it's delivered on the expectations that you had, but we'll do that in just a couple of minutes. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. We are absolutely blessed with the presence of Lily Herman. So far, we've talked about how Formula One came to be a big part of her life. We discussed a little bit about her background in the reporting in the media industry, and we started to talk a little bit about how F1 is covered by the established media. Now, what I'm really curious to hear, because this is how I came to know of you, my wife admittedly knew of you before Formula One, and she became excited because she knew of you from your previous endeavors and was very surprised that you'd crossed over into a realm that she's very passionate about. But Engine Failure, you launched this newsletter. It's been hugely successful. Everyone that I speak to that reads it is very enthusiastic about it. And we have listeners asking us questions about it all the time as if we are partnered with you and I have to refer them to you. But exciting. So the question for you then, what was the motivation initially for creating the Engine Failure newsletter? So uh, it started the way most things do, which is my my main regular everyday group chat was very sick of me dropping F1 stuff into a non-F1 text. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that I think started it. I did have an F1 uh, group chat at the time. And they also, I think, were a little, a little tired of how much I was posting. And it wasn't just, oh, this race, this and that. It was like, I want to talk about Carlos's girlfriend, Issa, and this jacket she wore. You know, or like, the, you know, people were just like, this is, they're like, Lily, this is so much for 5 a.m. on a Tuesday. Like, please temper it. You know, like, and, and it's weird. I thought about starting a newsletter for a while. I'm a huge fan of the newsletter format. Um, one of my current gigs is I am uh, the person who writes Yahoo's most popular daily newsletter called The Yodel. Yahoo is in the big tech brand. So I, I, I love newsletters. I live and die by newsletters. I subscribe to probably over 250, 300 of them. Uh, they don't come every day, but I, I'm into that. Wow. As a format, I understand that <laughs> format and I love it. And I was, I, yeah, I just had a point where as a freelancer, I had a little bit of extra time in the summer. Some things had shifted around. And I said, you know what? Why not just see how it goes? And, you know, I wrote the first issue, it went out to maybe 30 people, they, all of whom knew me. I think I also put a link and maybe a couple people who who I didn't know personally subscribed. Um, but I lucked out with that first issue in that some people, I tweeted it out, I was actually going on a trip. So I tweeted it out before going on a seven hour road trip. And it just happened to fall into the hands of a couple of US-based media people, some other folks who just happened to see it. And it kind of wow. exploded from there. But I, yeah, I'd always pictured it as being kind of what I felt like I was missing in my various, you know, combings over of F1 media, but also, you know, social media pages. I was like, I just want someone who like can almost synthesize and curate all of this stuff, like it all in the same place. I don't want to have to go to eight different sources to find some of this. And on top of it, yeah, some places just weren't covering things, I think, as deep as they could have. So so yeah, I mean, it was very simple. Some of it has been really the same since it started. There's always kind of a main intro section. There's often some sort of unofficial ranking that is, you know, for instance, they have been Bridgerton themed. They have been, you know, just kind of, I think I did one about like what what I think, you know, various uh, hypothetical group texts I think exist within the driver's friend groups, um, you know, things like that. There's a fit check section, so we cover all the fashion, both for the drivers as well as the uh, significant others and partners of the drivers. And then there's also funny, weird sections. So I love Valtteri Bottas and Tiffany Cromwell, so they have their own section called Mom and Dad's Big Adventure. 
And there are sections too for just other news. Um, there's something called Conspiracy Corner where it's audience participation <laughs> or reader participation. And uh, the question this week as of this recording is about uh, the fact that Big Brother US is about to start up again soon. And so which driver do people think would win Big Brother and what would their strategy be? And thus far, there's been some interesting answers. But uh, And there's also the very popular... Carlos Sainz denim watch. So there's there's a wacky assortment. You could yeah, you really are getting you could get a little bit about feminism or Eurybips's racism and homophobia mixed with my thoughts on Carlos's jeans of the week. You know, like you, you really get a, a mix there, I would say. You'd made a comment earlier about the fact that by not being FIA credentialed and not being in the paddock, you're not beholden to the sponsor and you don't have to worry about upsetting or offending people or being offside. When you wrote the first issue, who did you expect to consume it? And what has the actual experience been? Have you been surprised by the people that have been subscribing and consuming the product? I honestly had no idea. I just, I would say as a as a career freelancer, part of my job has to be, I have to be a businesswoman, right? I have to see opportunities that are not being taken up by other people. I have to kind of see openings to to kind of do things, whether that's pitching individual articles or taking certain gigs. So similarly, I was like, I know there's a market for this because I'm not finding it. And I know I, if that such a thing I'm looking for existed, I would find it or someone I'm friends with would have found it by now. So in the form that I, again, I was conceiving it. I never want to pretend that I'm the first to talk about any of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, so I, I really had no idea. Um, I will say what has surprised me amongst the fan base is, one, a lot more men subscribe than I thought would. Uh, I, I'm i not surprised that more men also unsubscribe, because I think they quickly find, if it's not their cup of, if it's not people's cup of tea, they figure that out pretty quickly. Even though, like the sign-up form also tries to make it pretty clear what the vibe is of this newsletter, uh, but I, I, I've been surprised by that and how many men have been very passionate about things like the Carlos Sainz denim watch, uh, and not just like the hard-hitting stuff. Uh, I would say too. I mean, I'm not surprised because I'm queer as well, but there is kind of a really strong queer contingent um, that follows this newsletter very closely. Uh, so that's been interesting. Yeah, I didn't really have expectations. I had no idea. I knew going into it, I was entering into a beat that was so out of left field compared to what I'd done previously, that I just kind of said YOLO and did it, which seems to be a general uh, theme in my life. And I, yeah, I think all of it has kind of been a surprise. I didn't expect it to be, uh, really catch as quickly. So that was a little bit stressful. But generally, people have been great, uh, you know, really supportive. And if people, I kind of, you know, it's a dictatorship in the sense that if you don't like it, you know, I'm I'm all for listening and you know mistakes can be made and whatnot, but like it's my newsletter. You're not paying for it. So if you don't like it, like that's fine. I hope you find other F1 media that speaks to you. And if you like it, like let's keep having a good time talking about how Bridgerton relates to Formula One. <laughs> you know? So uh yeah. I originally I subscribed both on the recommendation of some friends and because of my wife and it was coverage of F1 that I didn't know I needed. And, you know, the timing for me was perfect because when you had the outcome of what we saw in Abu Dhabi last year, it felt like the entire F1 world was existing under this really dark umbrella, this dark cloud, and it felt like everything was doom and gloom. And all of a sudden, this kind of tribalism that maybe didn't exist before or maybe did but it's been amplified by social media it suddenly allowed me to look at formula one through a different lens and find the great things about the sport and the human things about the sport and to be honest the engine 
LinkedIn failure newsletter kind of got me through some of those darker months in the winter. So I've come to appreciate it and look forward to it every single week. Based on your experience so far, what are the topics that have been the biggest hits that have resonated with people the most and that have gotten you the most positive feedback? People do click on a lot of controversial links. Like, you know, the most recent issue as of this recording that's come out was talking about Yuri Vips. And it did take a couple of shots just saying, hey, Red Bulls had issues of offensive and derogatory comments from drivers and leadership alike. And the most clicked articles of the week are all right. about what Red Bull people have done. You know, so thank you to those journalists who who wrote those stories at some point. Uh, that that's kind of stuff's always popular. I'd say it's also always you know there's a section called other people talk, which is just my roundup of links basically. And people always like wacky weird stuff. So someone had dug up on Twitter Lance Stroll's bar mitzvah photos on a public. It was his photographer's website from you know, a decade ago. And so like people were clicking on that like crazy. There are certain drivers and wags people like. So no matter how many times I've mentioned Dana Ricardo's girlfriend, Heidi Berger, anytime I link to her Instagram, that's the most clicked thing. And I'm like, is it just that people like didn't pay attention? Is this just all new subscribers who are clicking on it? But there's a lot of intrigue around that. And even, yeah, I'd say too, anytime a wag wears something that's affordable and I link to it, like, yeah, like Heidi had some bag that she bought on Amazon recently and people were clicking on that, like, just, just wild. I was like, I didn't realize this was going to be such a, I mean, it's a cute bag, but I was just like, okay, I guess we all want to dress like Heidi. Uh, so yeah, so it, it really depends, but I, I will say people tend to, I think people tend to generally link on to certain like stories or conspiracies or whatnot. Uh, my latest, my latest uh, ongoing beef is with Bottega, the fashion brand, because every single fucking wag has the same mini Jody bag from Bottega. <laughs> and I am just like, I am foaming at the mouth to yell at everyone to put down the Bottega mini Jody. So, like, so, so I get a lot of tweets and like Instagram DMs being like, yes, I am team anti mini, you know, mini Jody bag. So people get very attached to very, very specific parts of, or I'd say on recurring segments or themes in the newsletter more than anything. Yeah. In the last segment, you spoke a little bit, and I want to pivot here, but you spoke a little bit earlier about Jamie Chadwick. And and I've, I've noted here in our outline, in the March 29th edition of Engine Failure, you wrote that Jamie Chadwick has encountered the established systemic barriers, quote, that have long kept many underrepresented groups from climbing further in motorsports. In her case, despite having twice been crowned the W Series champion, one of the things that I found refreshing about your writing is you were one of the few people at that time that saw the announcement of Jenna Racing and her return to the W Series for what it was, which was not an opportunity to celebrate the arrival of Jenna Racing and the return of Jamie Chadwick, but to criticize the motorsports industrial complex for the outright failure to find a way to help accelerate or provide another developmental path for her, that her return to W Series was in itself a, a disappointing turn of events, given the fact that with all the wealth and all the money and all of the new sponsors that have entered the sport, they weren't able to find her a ride in a different series to help with her developmental journey. From your perspective, was her return to the W Series an indictment of the motorsports industry? Oh, absolutely. I just think she's out of any, particularly amongst women drivers, she's one of the most clear-cut examples where you, again, I'm not saying that Jamie Chadwick, you know, 
should make it into F1. I think the problem is there's been such a ceiling put on her career in many ways that we'll, we're, it feels like we're never going to know. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, coulda, woulda, shoulda, and a lot of questions surrounding just what, what caliber of driver is she? Because we, you know, we've seen a lot of great stuff, but because there doesn't seem to be a forward path, we don't get to see more, right? And if you're her and you're stuck in this never-ending cycle of the W Series and whatnot, which there's been plenty of, I think, good things about the W Series and also a lot of very fair criticisms of the W Series as a concept, yeah, it's just it's just sort of showing to me, you know, if this driver who has shown that she is head and shoulders above much of the competition that she's against in her current kind of place in motorsports, why is there no clear-cut way for her to level up? You know, and right, and, right. and it, a lot of the and there's so many sponsors and teams and whatnot that are quick to talk about how amazing she is and my sort of thing is, well, where's the dough? You know, like where's the money? Because as we know, this is not a meritocracy and as we've learned from uh, in America from, you know, the lean in girl boss Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes era, like nothing really means anything unless there's money and sponsorship and whatnot behind it. So yeah, like the platitudes and whatnot can only go so far. And I think also regardless though, I think Jamie Chadwick, you know, it's just hard because I think at the same time, you know, Lewis Hamilton has talked about this sort of the weird tokenism and also exceptionalism when you're the first and the only. So my hope is that we wouldn't just see just Jamie Chadwick make it. My hope is that there'd be multiple women who would be able to get into Formula One. I think my dream would be very quickly that there were several women in there because, yeah, we're quick to put all of our hopes and dreams on a singular person, particularly when they're from an underrepresented background within a certain context. And if they don't measure up to some really impossible standard, uh, they get booted or everyone says, oh, we shouldn't let anyone in. Or you could be Lewis Hamilton and obviously be the greatest of all time and still be having people finding ways to try and, you know, knock your credibility. So it's it's this lose-lose for her, I think. And and I think it also, because she's in that weird spot, I think it just speaks to how many issues there are that yeah, aren't being really dealt with. And while I appreciate that there are these little opportunities that come around from different teams and whatnot, yeah, I'm like, show me the money and show me the seat, then we'll talk. So, you know, for instance, I, I think I can't remember if I said in that newsletter or another one, you know, it's great that Alpine had two uh, women drivers, you know, test drive some F1 cars, but uh, I don't see them racing every weekend. So uh, when we're gonna, when are we gonna get them in there? you know, when, when, when there are actual stakes involved uh, and money involved, that that's where I think we're, it's just one of many places where I think that there's an obvious uh, gap. My personal frustration at the time was it's not as though she won the championship once and it was a, a close fought battle, but the fact that she won it twice and that there was nobody in the industry willing to provide an opportunity, nobody's saying that she's going to be an F1 driver, but if she can't get that opportunity, then what opportunity will exist for the next young woman that comes through W Series and spent the last five years karting? What opportunity will exist for them? And if not for if not for Jamie, then who's going to get that opportunity? And I thought it was a horrendous precedence that the two-time W Series champion couldn't get the the ride that somebody couldn't provide those sponsorship dollars and you know i think for all of the efforts that 
the motorsports bodies globally have tried to do to present this case of being more welcoming and more inclusive. Here's a real world opportunity where we could have given her an opportunity and maybe she's not successful and that's okay because we've provided the platform, the opportunity. And, you know, I've said in the past because people ask us all the time and we're not experts, but my belief is that there's not one, but there's probably a couple of young girls out there right now that are in karting that will be in Formula One. So the current, the first, the next female Formula One driver may not be in the W Series, but she's out there somewhere. But if the current W Series drivers aren't getting that opportunity beyond that platform, then what hope do any of them necessarily have? So I thought that was problematic. And Personally, as well, I also didn't like the fact that the partnership with Jenner Racing seemed to be a mechanism to distract from the fact that she was coming back to the W Series. So the conversation wasn't about, oh my gosh, she's coming back again, despite being a two times champion. But hey, look, she's being partnered with Jenner Racing. And isn't this great for the W Series that we're bringing Caitlyn Jenner in, which in itself is hugely problematic for a host of reasons. A whole can of worms with Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah, I the second I saw Caitlyn Jenner was going to be the sponsor. I was like, I know exactly the peg they're going to take with this to try and and avoid, you know, like kind of slip, get slippery and avoid any any real discourse around why Jamie Chadwick is racing for a third time in the same series. And yeah, like Caitlyn Jenner, a hyper controversial, complicated figure, not just from coming from the you know. Uh, that we say the joking like American right. royalty right. family of you know uh, Kardashian Jenners, but also someone who uh, the trans community in the U.S. Has a lot of problems with the LGBTQIA community here has a lot of problems with, and um, you know it's it's just there, there's I, I said in my newsletter there's endless things to say about Caitlyn Jenner's background and what she said what she's done etc. So the whole thing is just you know I, it's one of those things too where I also have to be like oh Jamie having to partner with. Like, why are you parting with Caitlyn Jenner? But then also, again, I say this all in my newsletter, but also being like, I don't know what other options she had. You know, like, again, it's like, it's a it's a very thorny, complicated issue. And I definitely don't want to, you know, surmise on things I have absolutely no way of knowing. But it's just, yeah, the whole situation, every single layer of it is just a big sigh to me. You know, you're just like, oh, God, like, she's back for a third time. No one's giving her the money. She's partnering with Caitlyn Jenner. Like, you know, it's just, it's just like every single bit of this story that as it came out, I was like, oh, God, like someone... Yeah, and it's, I think, a case, too. It's not that no one... It's just that no one would right. give her the money. I don't think it's just a case of, like, we couldn't find this mysterious yep. Yep. money. Yep. <laughs> like, you know, it's, like, it's like, you're telling me we can we can magically find millions of dollars for other drivers who I would argue are much more subpar or, you know, are just not on her level, and yet you all couldn't put aside some funds for her? Like, I find this whole thing very Absolutely. questionable. So, yeah, just, yeah, layers. I just, like I said, I it, my, my dream would be that there's, like, four women in F1, at the same time, because just start out like first year, just put four in because I don't want any one of them to have all the pressure. So I, that would fair. be my dream would just be like, spread them out call or just or you know what, let's just have a, a grid, F1 grid of all women. So you know, like, I do it. Let's let's call it a day. But uh, yeah, it's just Jamie Chadwick, as I said, it's just so indicative of so many motorsports problems across the board that it's oof, yeah, quite a can of worms. Lily, let's Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about an exciting new endeavor, an exciting new project that you announced just a couple of days ago and will probably be launched by the time listeners are hearing this. And then we've got a couple of listener questions before we let you go and enjoy your Friday evening. Stay tuned, everybody. We're going to be right back. We're just going to pay a couple of those proverbial bills. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know we are being joined by the legend Lily Herman. Lily, on June 20th, you announced a brand new podcast from Sports Illustrated Studios and iHeartRadio called Choosing Sides. Formula One, a show that promises to quote unquote dive deep into the sport. What is the origin story for this podcast? I know it's been in development for a while. How did this project come to be? Um, so there's a difference between how it came to be and how I came to be part of it. Um, but yeah, it's a very exciting thing. <laughs> uh, I will say I first got, it was already in development last early last fall when uh, I, I essentially had a friend who said, hey, will you talk to this guy at Sports Illustrated Studios and 101 Studios is the other kind of major uh, part of this. Just about like you have this newsletter, like talk to them for 20 minutes about like weird F1 gossip and that sort of slowly snowballed into, hey, do you want to be part of this? And then, hey, by that we mean, do you want to co-host and co-produce it? So, so I sort of found myself in this interesting, interesting spot. I will say it is uh, the F one part of it will be kind of a, a limited series here. It's a, it's one season, fifteen episodes. It's going to be part of a larger kind of way of looking at sports that are not as popular in America. But we're starting, or, or they are starting with Formula One. Uh, but essentially, choosing sides F1, very simple premise is that it will be me and my co-host is Daily Show with Trevor Noah comedian Michael Costa. And I am taking him a, when I say complete Formula One newbie, I mean it, through F1. So we will be journeying through every single team and driver on the grid. And at the end of this, Michael is going to choose who he wants to support to kick off his fandom in the sport. And I will say... um, I, you know, it's interesting. Some people have asked, like, well, is he going to, you know, is he going to only support one? Like, what's the deal? And I will say it definitely is a journey. Uh, Michael, before recording this, we were very clear he did not watch a lick of Drive to Survive, had never seen a race, could not tell you a single driver on the grid. So we really, when I say newbie, I do not mean some sort of person who watched all of DTS and then claimed they were new to this. Like, he is truly, at the start of the season, has no idea what... Formula One really is. Uh, I, you know, we have to explain the differences between an F1 car versus a NASCAR, you know, versus Indy car. It, it's completely new to the sport. Is my is my point. Michael Costa, as you said, probably known to most of our listeners as a well-established correspondent for the Daily Show, is again, as you mentioned, your co-host. Why Michael? What what was the appeal? Was it that he obviously has a, a great presence? He's a well-established uh, member of, of the media. He's got a great personality. Was the fact that he had no background in F1 one of the key motivating factors to integrating him into the show? Yeah, I think those are definitely two of the reasons. I think something else that's a very fun fact about Michael is he used to be a pro tennis player. Um, not a very good one in that I think he was ranked like 800th you know, in the pro, the pro tour, like he, he was not good by his wow. own admission. I'm not, I'm, you know, <laughs> this is what he has said. So I think that he, and then he also was a, a collegiate tennis coach after that. So I think he brings a different perspective as someone who has played at an elite level and trained people who have played at an elite level of a sport. And while obviously that tennis is not formula one, 
he, I think throughout the season, which I think becomes pretty apparent, is able to relate to certain drivers and certain teams and certain situations more than the average person. He gets how much it takes to be a champion in that he did not achieve that himself, right? So so he knows, you know, in tennis, if you're going to be a, a Roger Federer, a Rafael Nadal, you know, Djokovic, Murray, wh- whoever, just how much you have to sacrifice to be at that level of any sport. So I think that that's a great addition to this is 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 his his perspective on, you know, there are different drivers with very different stories. You know, a Lewis Hamilton background is very different than Max Verstappen in some ways, but also very similar. You know, so it, there's all these fun, interesting things that I think in, in nuances that he's able to bring. Uh, obviously, he does that in a very comedic way. And I think, too, by bringing someone who is, when I say brand spanking new to the sport, they ask a lot of the obvious questions that even Drive to Survive viewers kind of take for granted, like the really basic stuff. So I think it's a, it's a podcast where my hope is that people who do watch F1 and already kind of know it can maybe follow along and learn a couple of fun, interesting tidbits, and also just quite frankly have some fun maybe agreeing or disagreeing with Michael. And as well, if you if you are someone who has a friend or a family member or someone in your life who you've been saying, you know, I really want to get them into F1, but they're claiming it's too confusing or whatever, uh, we really start with the basics. Like episode one is in fact an intro episode kind of crash course to you know, how did how did Formula One start off as this kind of quaint gentleman sport in the airfields of, you know, the UK and become this like massive billion dollar juggernaut, you know, the, the, that kind of stuff that I think is often glazed over, but still fascinating to learn. I think you preemptively answered my next question. And the question was going to be in in a landscape where there seems to be new F1 podcasts launching daily, and almost all of them have the exact same template, which is a panel of hosts that review a list of news stories and share their opinions, what angle or direction were you hoping to take the show to create a unique lane for it. But I think you've effectively described that, right? That this is going to be different than a conventional F1 podcast. Yeah, a little more self-contained than the typical F1 podcast. We're not doing like race reviews. And again, not saying there's anything wrong with recapping and reviewing and and whatnot. Uh, I, I think too... You'll also hear some voices that are typically underrepresented in F1 media, which is really, really great. So uh, I think that's been a really fun part of this. And you'll see also some people just from the internet who you might recognize as being commentators on their own, you know, they're on the podcast, which is great. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too, too much, but uh, (laughs) you know, it's, but it's, I think it's, yeah, it's a very fun, quirky look. You get a mix of there's, we, we talk about some of the big scandals, right? With some teams you can't talk about without discussing their biggest scandals, you know, can can we really, you know, I'm trying to think, like, can we really discuss Haas without rich energy? Like, you know, things like that, where you, you, you're like, okay, that's part of the team history we absolutely need to talk about. And it's an absolutely absurd team history. Uh, you know, as we were recording the episode, obviously, everything went down with the Mazepins and, and whatnot. Can you really discuss where Haas is today. You can't you can't talk about why Kevin Magnuson is suddenly back without discussing why there was a, you know, the unceremonious dumping of his predecessor. So, I think that that's a really fun element that it really mixes team history, you know, team dynamics, some things that might seem familiar, and then there's some other fun facts and other things thrown in. And and my challenge as the the co-host who knows F1 is trying to figure out, yeah, what can I tell a newbie that they would need to know to get a sense of all these different drivers? While trying to be fair to all the drivers, you know, some drivers, are, it's a little bit easier to, to paint a rosier picture than others. 
And then also doing it in such a way that's accessible to that person. Because, you know, again, there's a lot of stuff we take for granted, a lot of terminology, a lot of insider baseball stuff with F1 that's just not going to appeal to someone who literally didn't know what an F1 car looked like before venturing into this podcast. Knowing that a lot of our listeners are probably going to be very keen to check this out, I I have two questions. One is, when does it launch? I know there's a trailer up now that a ton of people have checked out, including my partner who listened to it minutes after it came out. But what is the release schedule going to be, given the fact that you're not going to be, your cadence isn't going to be dictated by the calendar, by races, by news that comes out over the course of a campaign? When does the first episode come out? And what does the release schedule or release calendar look like for the 15 episodes that you plan to launch in season one? Yep. So it will be 15 episodes uh, all coming out Tuesdays starting June 28th. And there are also three extra episodes that will be Thursday launches. And that's going to be essentially we go in team order of where all the teams finished for the 2021 Constructors Championship. So we start with Mercedes, we go to Red Bull, we go to Ferrari. And those top three teams are actually two-parters. So those three weeks will have an episode on Tuesday as always, and then a second Thursday episode as well. And so that'll be kind of split between, you know, part one will be more about the team and the history of those teams. They have three very different trajectories of how they came to be in F1. And then the second of those two parters will obviously dive into the drivers. I will say episodes are typically 30 to 35 minutes. So the hope there is that we're not getting so far into the weeds with, you know, technical stuff and whatnot to where people, again, newbies can get lost, uh, but that there's a more, I would say overall, it's a more holistic look if you're really getting started in F1 you have some things to latch on to or kind of be interested in. And I will say that uh, Michael Michael has texted me post-recording with his thoughts on races and questions. He had he had many questions after the uh, the Checo philandering scandal of a couple weeks ago <laughs> from Monaco because you know that that can't kind of I mean that that stuff was on TMZ. So so he definitely has a vested interest post choosing sides F one recording in the sport, which I right. think is very great. Uh, yeah. One last question, just on the topic of this exciting new podcast before we move on to listener questions. Obviously, you know, you go into this project with a certain understanding of what the work's going to be required and, and how the process is going to look. But what did you discover as a surprising or challenging aspect of trying to put together an F1 podcast in a country where this sport typically hasn't been dominated and typically hasn't been a part of the national conversation? Yeah, I think there are a couple of obstacles. One, obviously, you cannot cover everything. And so, you know, I already anticipate there will be some people who will be upset that I left out XYZ things about this team or this driver. And it's like, I'm sorry, like... If it were up to me, I'd have 18-hour episodes, you know, explaining everything about Lewis Hamilton's background all the way to him running an Instagram account for his dog. Like, that was up to me. That's what we do. But we can't do that. We're not contractually obligated to do that. Um, And moreover, I think iHeart would not be very happy with that. So uh, I think that was a challenge, was was just trying to figure out what to fit in. I think on top of that, like I said, I have my own driver preferences or things I'm a little bit skeptical of and whatnot, but kind of... I don't, you know, the podcast is not unbiased, but it, it definitely, I had to say to myself, okay, how do I present the the great and not so great parts of all these different drivers? What stuff, again, what stuff do you put in versus leave out? You know, everyone's going to have different opinions on, on what's important about any driver, right? Regardless of if you like them or don't like them. So that was definitely a, a challenge. And then, um, and then, yeah, on top of that, I think just another thing that was really interesting is, yeah, having to figure out how to explain certain concepts that don't come across in American sports in the same way. So, so for example, 
you know, Michael, you'll see this very quickly in the first episode, this whole idea of a number one, number two driver. He's like, I'm sorry, these teammates compete against each other directly and teams can in fact like very obviously and vocally prefer one over the other. You know, like that's a mind boggling concept in the context of American sports, right? So things like that, like really trying to explain the mindset of how that even comes to be is a very different thing. And and so that was definitely, yeah, trying to figure out, okay, how do I explain this? Especially when I'm just, it's just so ingrained and normalized in my mind. And then how do I do it in a way where someone without that context can kind of at least get into it or see how it's going to affect all of the teams we talk about in different ways, right? There's a big difference between you know, Ferrari's two drivers in that relationship versus Red Bull versus Mercedes, you know, the list goes on and on. So a very uh, wacky set of circumstances and obstacles. Lily, before we let you go, are you cool if we take some listener questions? Yes, let's let's do it. Okay. So the first one, this comes from Zach St. Clair. And the question for you is, can you please ask Lily what her strategy has been as Esteban Ocon's top secret glow-up stylist? Okay, admittedly, I know Zach. So hello, Zach. Uh, okay, here is here is my, <laughs> my hot goss. I am just telling everyone, Esteban Ocon and his team are making a big PR move. The second I saw that Vanity Fair spread where everyone made sense in it to be there except for Esteban, I knew this man is on a mission he looked like a cult leader in that spread, and I loved it. <laughs> um, they, he has been Mr. <laughs> glow up on his Instagram, taking these glamour shots lately. He has mentioned to GQ that he is hiring a stylist. Like this man is trying to make a move right now. So that I, 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 I won't even say I'm promoting. I'm just saying that if there's any, if if there's anyone on the grid, I'm saying watch this space when it comes to the PR of that driver. Esteban has made it very clear publicly that he wants to become like that next level guy. He doesn't just want to be a driver. He is okay entering a little bit more of that public space, which I am fascinated by. But like I said, as soon as he was in Vanity Fair, I have no idea how they made that happen. But it was a very smart move on his team's part. Reza Amani asks, Lily, are you going to keep publishing Engine Failure after the podcast starts. Yes, I actually think it, it's been pretty erratic publishing in part just be between the podcast and I, I still am doing other freelancing. So my hope, though, is that now that a lot of my work with the podcast is done, I mean, the active recording and the research and the episode stuff <laughs> that goes into that that pre-production and, and production, uh, I, my hope is that I can go back to being weekly with some bonus stuff thrown in whenever I just feel like I have more things to say. Sarah asks... And I like this question, to be honest, and this is something I was alluding to earlier in the podcast when we were talking about the different ways that you can be a fan and the different ways that you can consume Formula One. But she asked, what does it mean to be a Formula One fan? Are there certain norms that you have to fulfill to qualify as an F1 fan? I definitely think that you can do whatever you want and be whatever type of fan you want to be. I will say... I think there are different responsibilities for different types of fans. So if you're newer to the sport, I think it's important to understand that there's going to be stuff you just don't know. And that is totally cool. That's part of being, that's the fun and excitement of being new to something. So being curious and just saying like, okay, I'm new to this. I'm not going to know everything. That is okay. I will go learn it, but I will not presume that I am like the be all end all of the knowledge of this fandom or this thing. And I think if you're, you're an older fan and I don't mean older in terms of age, just in terms of duration of, 
being involved in that in that fandom, being able to say, okay, newer people are just not going to know things. And at the same time, there might be things where I have to pivot my thinking and and my knowledge or, or whatever to to a new era. So I think that it's it's less about there's a prerequisite amount of stuff you need to know and whatever. I'd say it is helpful to know that there are 10 teams and 20 drivers, you know, the basics, but I'm never going to go after someone for not knowing what a double diffuser was, you know, like right, it's just... Right. I don't really care. One could, I could argue that I'm not going to, you know, I could, if anyone ever says something like that, I'm like, well, do you know the Carlos science denim theory? Because if not, you can't be a real F1 <laughs> fan unless you're paying attention to Carlos's bottoms for four days a week during a race weekend. Like that could be a really important part of fandom to me. So yeah, I think there's a lot of flexibility with it. And I think it's, it's great if anyone consumes anything F1 related, be it they just watch a race or two, they they follow some Instagram accounts, whatever. But I think, yeah, I think gatekeeping gets very old very quickly. And it's often meant to keep the same kind of groups out as other sports and just other, I think, fandoms in general. So um, speaking yeah. personally, and I think our listeners will probably not appreciate me saying this, but the Sunday Grand Prix are becoming a less and less important part of my F1 fandom. There's just so many other things about the sport that I find more compelling now and interesting than even the Grand Prix. And in the past, you would wait two weeks and everything would build to that moment. But there's just so much to talk about now and so much to consume that that I don't need the Grand Prix as that ultimate moment of satisfaction for being an F1 fan. And a couple of days ago, my wife and I actually got a text message from our son's godmother. And it was interesting. So she's 22 years old, university student taking business classes. And she's just like, hey, guys, I think it would be a really cool personality trait to be an F1 fan. Can you teach me how to be an F1 fan? And I just looked at that. And it's like, there's so much to unpack here. The fact that in 2022, a 22-year-old business student in university decides they want to be an F1 fan. Like, what is the reason for that? Like, why is it suddenly compelling? And then this next question is actually hers for you. But her question building on that is, can I be a fan of just a driver? Do I have to root for a team? And do I have to watch every race and qualifying session? I say you can absolutely root for however many teams, drivers and whatnot you want. I think what's fun about F1 is people often root for many people. And then on top of that, just even if a driver is not like their favorite, they'll still want them to do well or succeed. So I think that that's great. I think there's also, what you know what I love about F1 too? I mean, this goes for many sports, but there's all these mini storylines, right? Like for instance, you could not really care about Haas, but you could really want Mick to finally score points in F1, right? Or... You know, you're like, can somebody just get, you know, Lewis Hamilton back on the podium? But this is prior to obviously the Canadian Grand Prix. But, you know, things like that, you just you can pay attention to. And 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 that still kind of quote unquote counts. So, but yeah, I say you can like as many things as you want within the sport. I know some people, yeah, who are very casual about watching it, watching races and whatnot. I mean, again, in America, we're watching a lot of stuff here very early in the morning when things are in Europe especially. So, you know, I have friends who who work kind of wacky jobs and have to work during the time races are on on weekends. So, you know, it's like, I'm not going to tell them that they aren't fans just because they haven't watched every race or whatnot. Also, like, you know, I think the race in Japan is at 3am my time zone. Like, I don't really know if I'm gonna watch it live. Like I'm dedicated, but like, 3 a.m. is kind of a, a no man's land. So like you can't even say like I'm going to stay up a little late <laughs> like I did with Australia and watch at 1 a.m. Like what 3 a.m.? <laughs> like, you know, so. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you can do whatever you want. And I will definitely at least I personally will not be one to tell you, you know, you are or not a fan. Now, if you were to claim that you were the biggest fan 
and you're like, I have never seen a race ever, like even, you know, pre-recorded and watched it, like, then I'd be a little more like, okay, uh, that's an interesting take. But, uh, you know, other than that, I'm really not gonna, gonna gatekeep anyone on it. Michelle asks, and I think this is probably the perfect question for you, but she writes, in the past, if you wanted to be a writer, a reporter, a TV radio personality, you had to have a lot of luck and a huge break. Today, anybody can create any type of content and reach a huge audience almost immediately. How do established media companies compete and have a lot of independent folks found success without being connected to an established media company? So I think a lot of media companies are actually doing fine. Um, even if it, I mean, they're not doing great. Like media in general is a dumpster fire. And I think that doesn't even, doesn't matter what country I'm talking about, just complete pandemonium. Right. Especially though I can speak to American media right. is, a, is a mess. But so they're still doing well, right? Or they're, they're at least got it on lock. But I do think that there is a shift we're seeing in, you know, a lot of media places aren't paying contributors or paying them so little, you can't make a living out of being, for instance, an F1 journalist. And I will say that, yeah, we are seeing just in general in media, and particularly, again, speaking to American media, a proliferation of independent creators and writers and whatnot. But I will say for every one hyper successful creator or writer you see, there are thousands who are just not doing anything or not making it. Um, so that that's, I think, important is just there's such a quantity and very few make it. And I will say, too, that... Uh, very little successes overnight. So I think while, for instance, the F1 beat was new for me, one, I was already an established writer at that point, right? So I was almost a decade into my career. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, I do have, for instance, a Twitter following. So I'm able to tap into that. And some people who maybe didn't know I was an F1 fan prior to the newsletter launch, you know, they, they, there was a, pl a starting place for me, I would say. So, so I already had a little bit of a platform to be able to pull from, even if most of my followers were not following me for <laughs> race car content, you know, there, there were some who were maybe intrigued enough. And on top of that too, as I said, uh, I, I've networked a lot within media. I just happened to, you know, catch the attention of other media people pretty quickly. And that can really, really help spread something. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a complicated question in that anyone can start something, but in the words of a former internship boss, uh, used to say, if you build it, they will not come. So, <laughs> so it takes a lot of time to, to get going on anything. I'd say 95% of the time. We have one last question for you, and it's a bit of a two-parter. Jen asks, what are some of the best schools and programs for preparing somebody to become a writer or a reporter? If you were starting over from high school, which path would you take? And secondly, and this is the one I'm probably even more interested in, if you could personally crash the romantic dinner of any driver and their partner, who would it be and why? Oh, I've given so much thought to that second question. So you'll have to remind me of that in a second because I will have thoughts. But um, career... So career-wise, um, I did not grow up wanting to be a writer. Uh, I, I mean, when I was maybe very little. Um, ironically, and this is a story I tell in almost every interview I do, when I was in 10th grade, I had an English teacher who told me I was a terrible writer and put giant red X's through an essay I turned in. I still have the essay because I am a petty bitch, and someday this will, in fact, <laughs> come up. So I, yeah, we've seen it. My mother hates this teacher. She... My mother has probably has probably put a hex on this woman for the rest of her life, and we, we don't even know about it kind of thing. Um, so so I, I did not grow up wanting to be a writer, and I didn't have any any professional writers in my family, you know, so that wasn't a, a career aspiration. I didn't know that, you know, the media I do didn't exist, right, when I was born. And so it's, it was a very wacky career. I went into college hilariously wanting to be president of the United States. I joined student government and realized within two weeks I absolutely hated 
student government. I remember very vividly that we were having a 45-minute debate over if our dining hall should have more red lettuce or green lettuce, to which I thought, this is absolutely not what I want to do with my life. And obviously, as any American can attest, there's a lot more at stake than uh, the the type of lettuce in a, a collegiate dining hall. But I, I just very quickly realized that was not for me. And I, I did have some lucky breaks in that, for instance, I, I joined Wesleyan at the time where I went, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, not to be confused with Wellesley, which is where Hillary Clinton went. But Wesleyan uh, had a very, very robust campus blog at the time. At its peak, had over 300,000 visitors a month, which is wild for a campus blog. Uh, and, and there was a guy at the helm, Zach Schoenfeld, who, who is now a, a very respected and well-known journalist as well. Uh, he does a lot of different culture and, and stuff and specifically music. Um, but I, I caught a bunch of lucky breaks in addition to uh, working very, very hard. So I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, speaking into the US, there are a lot of journalism programs, be it Medill at Northwestern or Newhouse at Syracuse that, that have journalism programs. I think though, I kind of went the anti-journalism program route, which has been very, very different and fun. So I, I, you can definitely get into media without going to one of those journalism schools. Yes, they can help you make connections and, and whatnot. I will say there's a huge debate in American media around if journalism programs in their traditional form are obsolete in terms of what they teach and what they practice and preach. Um, I also, I was actually a, a Capel journalism fellow at Wesleyan for a year. So I taught a class at Wesleyan on digital media, which was basically, this was several years ago, to to basically say that everything they teach in a lot of traditional journalism programs is bullshit. So my point is, so my point is, you can, it's a lot of hard work. And even if you go to a journalism program, nowadays, that doesn't guarantee you anything. Uh, so I, I would say the good news is, yeah, you don't need to get into those programs to succeed anymore. I wouldn't say the bad news, but the hard news is that it's just a very difficult industry. Um, and I don't know, I honestly, I think if my 18 year old self found out that I was hosting a race car podcast for Sports Illustrated Studios, she would have some questions as to what the fuck went wrong. <laughs> so, like, like, so <laughs> like a real, a real, a real uh, pivot of fortunes there for 18 year old me. Uh, so, so yeah, so I think the good news is you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just a really rough, a rough time. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I do. I, I don't think I do it any differently, though. Um, I, I really don't. And I, I think I would have ruffled, again, keeping with my very mavericky American spirit, I would have ruffled at, at kind of the traditional, very rigid and kind of BS nature that that is presented in a lot of traditional journalism educational environments. From what I've seen and heard, I don't think it would have been for me. I think I would have really struggled. So... Um, and then to answer, to answer the question about crashing a romantic date. Okay, I've thought about this endlessly and I need, <laughs> okay, my friends know this. My eventual dream is to use my newsletter to pick like a blind date to go on with a driver and wag. That is like my dream. I will let you know if this ever pans out, but I have a couple of options here. One, I would want to go on a bizarre outdoorsy date with Tiff and Val, right? We all know this. Any Any reader will know. We're going to, I don't even like coffee, but I will drink some espresso beforehand. You know, we'll go on a bike ride around some Finnish countryside and then drink a gin-based tonic afterwards. Because as we know, Tiff and Val have a gin line. It is not available in the U.S., but if someone wants to ship some to me, that would be excellent for journalistic purposes. <laughs> uh, second, um, I think I would like to, uh, I think I would like to, 
go shopping for new pants for Carlos with Isa. And Carlos will be with us, but he'll kind of trail behind us while me and Isa right. chat. Of course. And the, yeah, the guys can kind of hang back um, while we do that because uh, we need to burn the white pants and the blue chinos that Carlos owns. And then, <laughs> and then I think I'd want, like, I had a question, a, a conspiracy corner question once related to, like, which driver pairing you think would, like, succeed in an escape room or something. But I feel like there's a couple of couples that would be very, very chaotic. Like, I feel like Alex Albon and Lily He would be a chaotic, fun couple to do an escape room with. Like, something weird like that. I'm trying to think if there's another couple where I'm just, like... Yeah, there's a, there's a few couples that I'm also just perplexed by where I just want to sit and listen to them talk. Like, I want to see what that dynamic is behind the scene. But yeah, but I think I think Tiff and Val would be very fun and outdoorsy. I would not be able to keep up with them, but like, it's a dream world <laughs> where I would I would keep up with them on the bikes. Um, and then, yeah, Carlos needs new pants. So that's what really, we're I think this is the perfect note to wrap this podcast up on you know on behalf of myself the podcast the community mark daly i cannot thank you enough for taking the time to join us today obviously we wouldn't let you go without giving without giving you the opportunity to let our listeners know where they can follow you where they can find your work uh give you the opportunity to kind of remind people when the podcast is going to be launching and what platforms they can find it yeah, so you can find me. I'm on Twitter at LK Herman, K as in kangaroo, and I'm on Instagram at Lily K Herman. Thank you, people who took other usernames so that I cannot use them. Uh, I will say Engine Failure, there's a link to it in my Twitter bio and elsewhere on the internet. I'm in the process of building a website. I own the domain, so it will eventually live at enginefailuref1.com. Let me double check that before this goes up on Sunday. Uh, I was men- meaning to build a website and then got a little bit busy producing a podcast. Um, so engine failure F1. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's kind of mostly where I live. I will warn you as I warn everyone that my inner internet presence is a lot of discussion of books, particularly romance novels, and particularly Bridgerton and Heartstopper, and as well as a lot of punk pop and other random assortments of, you know, politics and whatnot. So uh, just so you know what you're getting into, but I, I look forward to, hearing from more of you i'm always happy to talk about the dreaded cursed bottega mini jody bag and other conspiracies um but uh yeah thank you so so much for having me thank you so much for everybody listening at home thank you so much for joining us once again if you want to give us a follow on twitter you can find us at at f1 pod and as always we would be greatly honored if you could take the time to give us a rating on spotify or a rating or review on apple Podcasts, or even better both thanks once again we'll speak to all of you again soon bye for now